0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am very pleased indeed to welcome Daniel Skinner, who is the author of Medical Necessity, Healthcare Access and the Politics of Decision Making, uh, new out from the University of Minnesota Press. Daniel, welcome. Hey,
1: thanks for having me on the uh, podcast, Stephen. Great Great to be in touch.
0: Lovely to have you here. In the interest of full disclosure, we should tell people that uh, Dan and I went to grad school together, although really just sort of only overlapped a bit. So so there's not uh, too much by way of devious motives at work here. Um, So beyond that, uh, Dan, if you would, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you're currently doing and how it is that you came to this particular project?
1: Yeah. So I've been told and I have come to agree that I have one of the uh, stranger journeys in academia, starting as a political theorist at the City University of New York, uh, and eventually making my way not only to a medical school, but to an osteopathic medical school teaching health policy to medical students. So I'm kind of a theorist working in a policy environment in Ohio, but you know, within a medical education context, which is something I had to learn uh, from the beginning. Really, it's not something they teach you in graduate school, certainly not in a political science program. (laughs) Oddly enough. Yeah. And uh, I've talked to students, uh, you know, since about thinking about medical schools as places where, you know, in in this era where, you know, the arts and sciences are under attack, we need to be a little bit creative. So I would encourage people to keep that a little bit on their radar screen if possible.
0: So before we 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 talk about the book, can you talk a little bit about sort of from your perspective? Because that's not only, you know, sort of apparently odd for you, but presumably odd for the med school itself. What is it that caused them to hire you? Were they trying to solve a particular problem that they recognized?
1: That's a really great question. I was I was holding my breath until tenure. That if somebody would say, <laughs> Oh my God, who did Wait, we what hire? did we do? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I made it made it across that threshold, so we can speak freely. You no, know, I mean, look, uh, you know, Ohio University has um, made you know a name for itself in the area of rural health. Um, the main campus is located in at in Athens, Ohio, uh, in the southeastern part of the state. And uh, I was hired uh, one of the first hires for a new campus in the central Ohio area, in in the Columbus area, Dublin, Ohio, specifically. The goal there was really not only to get more involved in kind of urban uh, healthcare issues, but, you know, the state capitals there. So uh, to create connections with legislators, to think about um, the intersections of medicine and policy. Although as a political scientist, I've had tons of conversations with people trying to convince them that politics is not a bad word. We can talk about them. We just don't have to be jerks you know, but uh, and but that we can actually work with students to help them become a little bit more politically sophisticated. So that was the idea, was to have a policy person, you know, in the state capitol, essentially. Although there's just another piece to it, which is, you know, for for decades, medical students have tried to avoid policy. You know, they, they just wanted to stay as far away from it as possible. But we've seen in the recent decade or so, just to be a great physician, you, you need to at least be conversant in these issues and Hopefully, you can also um, be able to know how to engage them a little bit.
0: So that, that, that feels like the perfect segue. So, so the book is about uh, medical necessity, which is, I'm imagining, a, a phrase that most or all of our listeners have encountered at one point or another, most likely from their insurance company, denying a claim by saying that it is not medically necessary. So if you would, why don't you start us off by just tell folks a little bit about what that phrase means to you and why you have written an entire book about those two words. Well, I, I'll
1: t- actually take a step back and um, not to not throw your, through your um, you know, A-plus interviewing <laughs> off course, but my dissertation at the City University of New York was on the concept of necessity generally. And one chapter was on medical necessity, so that's kind of the the transfer point for me to to think about the medical piece. I was interested back in the day in just how this frame of necessity or this rhetoric of necessity was deployed politically. So, in, so in the dissertation, I look at Thucydides and I look at the you know uh, the, the history of the Peloponnesian War and some of the ways in which necessity was used to justify we must go to war. Or you think about Margaret Thatcher: there is no alternative. Um, the way in which that frame is used. Uh, I also looked at the McCullough versus. Maryland case, which has the famous uh, you know examination of the necessary and proper clause within a legal context. So I was interested in this question of how is necessity used to kind of make claims that we have to do this, we can't do that. there is no alternative. This is the only way to go. And what does this mean? How does this interact with like, you know, a bunch of different kinds of social phenomena? But the medical necessity part became a technical term that, you know, you got to keep in mind. I mean, I'm graduating from medical school just as a little context. I'm graduating from, uh, I'm sorry, I'm graduating. I didn't go to medical school.
0: (laughs) Wait, are you a doctor (laughs) suddenly now?
1: There we go. Uh, No, I graduated from from graduate school right as the Affordable Care Act was being passed. So I'm watching these debates. Um, You know, our union at the City University of New York had gotten, um, you know, health care for adjuncts just a few years earlier. Um, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer uh, a week before the Affordable Care Act became law or was signed into law. so I'm thinking about all these medical phenomena and listening to this discourse around me of what do you need to do, what don't you do, what should we pay for? And it really became my kind of political moment of this is something that I need to take care of, that I need to uh, you know as I've said to people when they ask you you know what do you want readers to get out of the book? a very basic thing aside from all the details is i want them to never hear the words medically necessary again without it being a super problematic you know uh, eye raising moment
0: um so so let's let's stay sort of in the 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 30,000 foot area for for a little bit before we dive in and talk about some of the ways in which this plays out on the ground um so you've got two uh, frames that that generally guide the way that that you're thinking about this this issue through the book. One of them you've made some reference to already. Sort of that that rhetorical analysis, the 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 ways in which you can sort of look at the internal coherence of knowledge and other kinds of claims. And the other one is sort of Foucauldian conceptions of power. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how Foucault plays out here and why that way of thinking about this you think is fruitful not just for you but for those of us who encounter this as we as we try to to, to get care for ourselves and our families?
1: Sure. So, you know, as we tend to when you look at non um theorists or you know how how lay people or even professionals in the medical world think about medical necessity, one of the things I show in the book is there is this kind of search this, this setting out to say we need to define this. We need to find out what is truly medically necessary and what is not. And we need to document this and nail it down. And what I show in the beginning of the book is that, and this is the Foucauldian turn, I think, is that what ends up being medically necessary or not is never just a matter of finding some kind of ideal or locating some kind of truth. It's always engaging some kind of a politics. It's always wrestling with various levels of power, whether it's physicians, um, you know, own sense of what they believe, whether it's insurance companies ability and their empowerment to mediate this, um, whether it's, you know, hospitals pushing back on uncompensated care and saying, we don't want to pay for this or that. Um, you know, and then patients, patients have their own sense of what, you know, they need. Um, of course that's also in 2020, 2019 jacked up, uh, to a great degree, by you know, looking at um, you know Facebook and things like that, where they're reading all this stuff out there and saying they they already come into doctors' offices. Doctors will tell you, loaded with, I need this drug or I think this is what it is. So you know, it, from from Foucault's understanding of how we think about knowledge as always infused and wrapped up with power or the power knowledge notion that he talks about, uh, you really see it at work in this. Even as all these people. And they need to. They need to define it because it's a technical term that gets used in, you know, insurance company language. Uh, it's so they they need to define it, but also those definitions are always going to be partial, and they're always going to be kind of uh, tentative.
0: So, so I'm, I'm another right sort of grad center grad who's who's taken sort of an odd path and and uh, got a degree in public policy, but have spent a lot of my professional career teaching graduate social workers. Um, So have spent a lot of time working with them thinking about the DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, which is the great big book of mental illness. Uh, that is its own problematic kind of thing that I won't wade us into, but it also sort of raises these questions about billing, right? So you're a therapist uh, setting up an independent practice. How literally does the way in which the structures of the DSM feed into the billing practices of insurance companies so that you can get compensated for your work? And how does the way in which you frame your interactions with a patient for the insurance company, alter the way in which you think about your interactions with that patient for yourself, right? So with that, by way of preamble, sort of choosing a billing code, which to many people I think would sound like this ridiculously dull, boring thing, is actually this hugely complicated act, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It, 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 again, the Foucaultian turn here would be to say... Medical necessity, the rhetoric of it, or the regimes that get built up around it, are literally something that people have to pass through to get access uh, through insurance companies for their patients. That's why I talk a little bit of, in the book about Gary Greenberg, uh, the book of Woe, which is his critique of the DSM. And you know, Greenberg, and I, I, I think this is super problematic, but I also, am, you know, I, I get it. He decides, as some psychiatrists have, they just they're not going to deal with insurance companies anymore. They're going to become cash and carry businesses, so they can um, just make decisions based on their own clinical knowledge or expertise. But then of course, in doing that, you're cutting out access for patients at the same time. So yeah, you do need to be able to say, this is going to produce benefit. This is going to, this is the way for us to help this person. And if the insurance company or somebody says no, then, you know, you're, you're, you're into the cash and carry world almost immediately.
0: Is there so as, as when you're talking about just sort of of, of, of students in medical school who are going to go off and practice in, in one site or another I mean what what do you tell them about how to think about that what is the relationship between identifying the billing code and what your actual understanding is of what you're dealing with with that patient so it's funny you know uh, from from when you look at the book,
1: you know, there are a couple of topics in it that are going to be intuitively, I think uh, interesting to some people, like of course, marijuana debates and the abortion questions and the C-section stuff and the mental health. But in my favorite chapter in the book is actually you know what some people would probably think is sounds super boring, but it's on medical coding itself, the epistemology of it, just the idea of you know sitting down to try to, okay, the doctor did this, and the doctor's assessment is that. But then they need to convert that into this other language, which is the language of coding. That then that becomes the conduit to become recognizable through insurance companies, right? So there's a translational thing that happens there. I actually open it up by talking a little bit about this uh, this notion of the archive that Jacques Derrida talks about. So you know, like just this idea that that you're trying to pass, and I do talk about the idea of passing a little bit that you're trying to. Uh, You know, there there are all these like for for for-profit companies, for example, that I talk about in the book that are, you know, trainings, webinars, things to help coders prove medical necessity, um, pass for medical necessity to maximize their bottom lines by just, you know, demonstrating medical necessity. I equate it in the book to a kind of whack-a-mole or a sort of game that gets played. Right. And that that becomes the, the focus is. On the one hand, you have doctors that are doing what they're doing, and then they have to translate it. So you have this kind of, you know, I I don't know, this sort of, not to say that doctors are doing things that they're not reporting accurately, but there's very clearly a kind of coaching process that gets implemented at that translational moment to get paid that might be different than the actual clinical care.
0: So you made reference to to the policy areas that you cover in the book, and I'm not sure we'll be able to get to all of them. But let why don't we why don't we start and talk a little bit about uh, marijuana and and putting it in quotes medical marijuana. So mm-hmm. so how does this this play out uh, as as we think about the the meanings of necessity?
1: Yeah, so each chapter does a little bit of a different um you know kind of d- li- do does a little bit of a, a different kind of work in the book as I think uh, is the goal. <laughs> um not a lot of redundancy. But with you know with marijuana specifically, you have and again to the rhetorical focus, you have this language that I know is falling out of favor, but this language of recreational versus medical. Um you know, and right now we have you know, like here in Ohio, I mean Ohio is a pretty conservative state, but we do have increasingly the arrival of medical marijuana. It's very controversial where the things end up, you know, the actual dispensaries and all that. But, you know, there's a sense that, you know, these are something that are going to really help people for legitimate medical need. But of course there's so much, um, you know, bleeding that goes on between recreational and medical. And you talk to, for example, sheriffs, they just don't believe it. They think it's all a cover for recreational a lot of the time, you know, And there are still a lot of people out there who just don't really understand what the medical benefits of it are. There's a a little bit of a hitch, which I talk about in the book, which is because of the classification of marijuana as a Schedule I drug, we literally haven't been able to research its medical benefits for a long time, Not, not in a sustained, open way. That's happening more and more. There are some clinical trials here and some exceptions. But how can we lay medical claim to something that can't even be, that is de facto defined as something that has no medical benefit? So what I show is that there's this kind of game that goes on between the recreational and medical, that actually produces more of a, a political question rather than what is le- what is legitimately medical and what is legitimately recreational,
0: and and complicated by the fact that that some uh, advocates of of so-called recreational marijuana use have been fairly upfront about the fact that they are using. The 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 medical necessity argument as sort of the camel's nose in the tent, right? If we can get this in on the ground for medical use, then it that creates a space where we can then expand it for recreational use, right? Right, and and if this
1: language of the medical, if this classification of the medical, which used to be sort of the the last stand of these debates, right? You say, well, look, this is for medical purposes. I mean, even you know, uh, cross border flows and refugee, uh, you know, like asylum seeking could historically point to medical arguments, and that would persuade them, this wasn't just about me and my, you know, preferences or whatever, this is something I need, I'm going to die without this, or it used to be very powerful. So what happens when we create something like a medical versus recreational split, is that it starts to erode even the value of that medical, right? And that, 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 that language itself starts to lose some of the efficacy that it once had.
0: Uh, so let's turn to one of the, uh, the areas that you focus on, which is is reproductive health broadly, but specifically homing in on on C sections and abortions. Um, talk to us how how should we be thinking about those uh, uh, acts? I'm trying to avoid describing them as medical procedures because that's already buying into one side of the argument, right? How should we be thinking about about those those acts?
1: Yeah. So uh, the the abortion side of this does come directly out of my doctoral work and. Uh, and an article I published in 2011 in Politics and Gender. So, you know, it, it had been something I've been thinking about a long time. Uh, it draws on some of the work, for example, of, you know, uh, Roz Prochewski's work in this area. She was one of my committee members who really got me thinking about this originally at, at CUNY. Um, you know, the, the issue, again, that I'm I was most concerned with there was, what kind of claim is, abor- is, is 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 are we making around abortion access and again i'm trying to avoid just using the word rights because that's a political claim right there and what the argument i i make i kind of show i think i persuasively show we'll see what readers think that you know while you see a lot of um abortion rights advocates abortion access advocates using this idea of like the medical frame, that this is a medical procedure, that it should be between a doctor and a patient, that kind of, what happens is that you create the situation where as technology develops, as we become more adept at, for example, uh, preterm births or early term births, right, that you actually start to lose your own argumentative structure for why this thing is something we value. I mean, the the, the original abortion rights arguments of the 70s in the Roe heyday tended to be look. This is a woman's right to choose. End of story. This is not about whether she's you know in danger, you know, like the life of a mother, or the life of a of a fetus or of a baby. However, again, the language catches us that we really lose something when we start to frame. And I, I started to notice that in the last ten, twenty years, what uh, you know anti-abortion groups have done is to really start to limit this to this medical question. And in the book I try to explain. Why I think they ultimately lose that debate, right? Now the weird to some people uh, turn that I do in this chapter is I also pair that with another reproductive issue, which is the C-section question of increased C-section rates, and I try to show that these rhetorically have something interesting to offer one another when you think about something uh, like you know uh, this this surgery that used to be just a couple percent of American births and now is in the 30s at least. Um, in some countries, it's much higher, even. And how how does a surgery become mainstreamed? What are the driving causes of that? And it's not just the health of a mother; it's not just the health of a, of a baby. It's this other politics that has to do with um, the epistemology of medicine generally,
0: and the political economy of it as well. Right in terms of of what kind of money is available to be made. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and and you know this is why you know when, when you know again I I, I um. I teach medical students, I hang out with a lot of physicians these days. I find that they're, 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 this is a little bit of a scandalous way from their perspective to treat this concept of medical necessity, which they believe in is like a real thing or not a real thing. and what I'm saying is no, this is a rhetorical production that is is, is inherently political, and you know the the money in medicine has a lot to do with it, obviously with healthcare reform, if we take certain kinds of uh, financial incentives out of the mix, medical necessity is going to look different because then when when if you can persuade something if uh, an entity that med- that something is medically necessary, there's money there for it. and that that's kind of one of the parts of the game that's most important to catch.
0: So why don't we use that as a segue to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act? Uh, First, in the context of the conversation we were just having, uh, talk a little bit about the Hyde Amendment and uh, the the fact that that was essentially reaffirmed in the Affordable Care Act, right? You've got this putatively Democratic policy that dodges what at least politically had been constructed as Republican policy. And then maybe let's talk a little bit more broadly about what the ACA uh, did and did not do in terms of confronting this question of necessity.
1: Yeah, one of the things I argue, and I don't think it's even controversial at this point, is just the politics of medical necessity are thorny. And there's a lot of reasons why somebody like President Obama, who was trying to thread this incredible needle at that time, trying to pass something through. He had Bart Stupak. um, He had Senator Lieberman. He had, you know, some some Republicans and some Democrats in the center that he was trying to work with who, you know, are not uh, openly supportive of what we'd call, you know, uh, just reproductive rights or total reproductive freedom um, you know the ACA kind of dodged the issue altogether and you know basically deferred back to um, physicians on the question and to the existing entities I mean one of the big things that allowed the Affordable Care Act to get passed in my view was that President Obama and you know this is controversial but uh, especially with the Bernie folks but you know, Obama, um, you know, co- collaborated with, worked with the insurance companies instead of, you know, closing them out like he did, uh, like Clinton did in the '90s.
0: Well, that shouldn't be controversial, though. I mean, that's demonstrably true. Right? Sure, you're not going to have you're not
1: going to have healthcare reform at all without those that's kinds right. of moments. But as a result, it didn't really do much to have a national conversation about what our healthcare approach is, what our priorities are going to be. Uh, what the relationship between evidence and what gets paid for is going to be. I mean, it did a lot, you know, I, I, by establishing research institutions and putting money into research. But you know, the, the broader philosophical question about how to define something like medical nece- med- medical necessity uh, didn't happen in those debates.
0: So, as 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 we work our way toward the end of this conversation, I wonder if that isn't isn't a way to 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 ask you to think about where you expect we we might go from here and i'm going to frame the question in a way that is a little bit outside the the book itself uh but if we listen to discussion about what has come to be called medicare for all right which is Mm -hmm. now this sort of catch-all term that means fourteen thousand different things depending on who you're talking to and everybody is really careful not to be too explicit about what it is that they themselves mean but as we as we look towards sort of of uh, let's say, reduced influence of private sector insurance in the delivery of American healthcare. Is that, it, it, should we move in that direction? Uh, do you think that that inevitably will require us to more explicitly contemplate what we will identify as necessary? Yeah,
1: well, it's interesting. When you look at, well, first of all, one thing to say is, you know, Medicare for all, uh, ex- especially with, you know, the existing, the existing Senate, even the Democrats who there's not a ton of support, even among the Democrats, we don't talk about that sure. enough. Right. You know, if, even if, uh, president but it's not Sanders, going
0: anywhere in the short term,
1: right? President Sanders becomes president. All of a sudden, Joe Manchin's going to become a Medicare for all per person or something, right. like that. You know, uh, not going to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, th- that said, uh, there are so many different ways we could do this. And the most basic question here is about the so-called language of single-payer, right? So that's just about how you pay for healthcare, though. That has nothing to do with the delivery of healthcare necessarily. Um, As far as I know, uh, nobody's talking about a, a... Federal takeover of the uh, the hospital systems, and there's going to be a public private negotiation that happens with any kind of proposal. I know that might upset some Bernie folks, but it's good. It's it's just realistically politically, I think that that's the case. This is all a long way of saying that Medicare for all doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the question of medical necessity necessarily. Now, medical necessity is so. If you turn to some place like Canada, and obviously there are, there are critics of the Canadian healthcare system in Canada, but it's still comparatively very popular. Um, even conservative politicians in Canada aren't running on, you know, taking away the Canadian healthcare care system. Uh, what, what there is in Canada that I think is more important than how you define things or, you know, all that is that there's a greater degree, not, not unbridled or perfect, but a greater degree of trust in decisions made by entities empowered through the federal system. So for example, in in the United States, if somebody tells you, look, you know, you're going to get your hip replacement, but you're going to have to wait a few months, even it's funny in the United States, a lot of people have to wait a few months for things like a hip replacement anyway, which we don't talk about. Um, but you know, like the, most the average Canadian response is, "Yeah, okay, that seems right, that seems fair in the united states uh, the, those are death panels where this is this is rationing, like start rationing you know, care yeah, Hitler or whatever you know it, it's incredible. it just becomes this incredibly unproductive political conversation. What you really need with medical necessity debates is some kind of trust in the systems that are making decisions about how to prioritize care um, and that's that's a very abstract way of looking at it because but if you have that. The details get worked out and people don't start screaming, I want this right now. I want that. Or this is being done for the wrong reasons. Ironically, I think uh, when you have so much money in a system, there is a lot of reason to think that a medical necessity denial is being made for financial reasons, even though it might not be. The perception is there because we've allowed it to be there.
0: And so it it. It's I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um so it 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 sounds as if you are suggesting that if one of the consequences of some sort of of move towards some sort of single payer like system uh uh were to shift the location uh or at least shift the balance of that decision making more into public institutions rather than we're more into institutions that are not insurance companies. Let me say it that way. Um, That it, that the difference really may only be difference around the margins that, that, that same sort of contestation for power is going to take place among roughly the same set of actors and interests.
1: Absolutely. And and if you, if, if you create a system, I mean, you know, one of the funny parts about this is that you know if if you have physicians making decisions who are sitting on let's say you know we talk talk about death panels and government boards and all this kind of like scary language you know within american politics but at the end of the day if you ha- if you have an evidence base that says this works and we will pay for things that work but we're also going to be involved in constantly researching and increasing our research base so we know what works better yeah, then that's fine. But the next step is convincing people that those decisions are actually the ones that have them in mind. And I think what happens is people think, "No, this decision's just cutting me off. They don't give a shit if I die." Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, but they don't care if I die or what. Um, that's not really true in a lot of cases. But then again, just because something uh, you know may, may be done well doesn't mean that we've created the perception or instilled the trust that it's being done. Well. And we need to do both those things. And I think that we have a system that raises a lot of skepticism.
0: You've been listening to The New Books Network. I am Stephen Pampera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we have been speaking today with Daniel Skinner, who has been talking about his terrific new book called Medical Necessity, Healthcare Access and the Politics of Decision Making. And if you have ever encountered a denial from your insurance company that says a procedure that you are absolutely convinced was necessary and your doctor was convinced was necessary, but your company told you it was not. Read this book and it will give you an entirely new way of thinking about what that experience was. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate it.